My wife, Michelle, and I began dating our sophomore year of college. And about a month into our dating relationship, we had plans to go with three other couples out for a dinner date on a Saturday evening. Some of you know a little bit about the story, so if you've heard it, humor me, go with it. I called Michelle uh, on that Saturday afternoon because I didn't know exactly what restaurant we were going to, what the plans were, and I said, anything special we're we're supposed to wear? And she replies, oh, I forgot to tell you, uh, we're doing a theme date. Each couple's dressing up according to a different theme. Uh, Allison and David, they're they're doing a prom theme. They're, They're dressing up like a prom date. Uh, other Allison and, and Marshall, they're doing a hippie theme. They're dressing up as, as hippies. We, we're doing a Texas theme. Cowboy and cowgirl. I had not heard of this. I really want to know part of this. I was particularly... I, 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 was, certainly, I was an overstudier in college. I, I was concerned. I felt like I had stuff to do, things that needed to get done, and now... Um, this was going to take time. But I like this girl, so I take a deep breath, and I promise this, this Ohio boy will find Texas attire. So I walk down the, the dorm rooms and asking if I can borrow various items. And it takes a couple hours, but I find a pretty good cowboy hat, a nice belt buckle, cowboy boots in my size, leather vest, I step out of the dorm room towards the roundabout where everyone's going to meet for for dinner that night. And what I did not fully or nearly appreciate at that time was the fact that you knew Michelle liked you if she messed with you. (laughs) Six of them were already waiting there, and to my horror, wearing very regular clothes outside of Texas. They got me. And it's a great story. They were not malicious in the least, just having fun with someone they knew to be rather gullible, if y'all didn't figure that out yet. But you know the part of that story that still sticks with me and bugs me? I did not laugh in the moment. (laughs) Or like at all that night. I actually, I turned right back around, went into my dorm room without giving them the pleasure of, of letting me get too close. I did eventually change into normal clothes outside of Texas, and, and, and returned to the dinner party. But the whole time, I was just mad. I was mad for lost time because I had work to do and studying to do. I was mad because I was like, that's actually a pretty good joke. But I couldn't laugh. Like, I was mad that I just wouldn't let go of this pride or self-importance or stress or whatever it was. I was just mad. I, I wasn't going to laugh. On the podcast, Hidden Brain, there was a recent episode on laughter, and it cited this study from uh, a few years ago that says that uh, your average four-year-old child laughs 300 times in the course of a day. By contrast, it takes over two months for the average 40-year-old to laugh that many times. And it's not until we hit into our late 60s and 70s that we start to recover some of that laughter. I heard, and it's true. <laughs> Where does it all go? What holds it in? I mean, it's, it's not just a kind of a quest, curious question or even a, a uh, mental health question, though, that plays in. I, 
It's also a faith question. Do you remember way back at early in Genesis, God promises that the elderly Abram, Abraham uh, and his elderly wife Sarai, eventually Sarah, they're going to have descendants as numerous as the stars. And do you remember how Sarah responds to this promise she's going to have a child, something she undoubtedly ached for to have had, but now she's very old? Do you remember? Yeah, she laughs. Like it's preposterous. She probably laughs just to stave off the weeping that would be very real if she started to let that idea concretize in her heart. But then sure enough, right, Sarah gives birth to Isaac. And anyone know what what Isaac means? Laughter. He laughs. And think about this. How many times in Scripture do we hear a reference to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? The people of Abraham, Isaac, and and Jacob. Isn't it great that we are heirs to a faith that has laughter sitting right in the middle? Abraham, laughter, and Jacob. The beginning portion of Psalm 126 has the people of God remembering the joy of laughter. You heard Penny read, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like people who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with with laughter. We shouted with joy. And it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. They're recalling this time when God brought them back from exile, back from a time without a home, back from a space of judgment. And and, and the way God came through for them, it it, it was dreamlike. They didn't deserve it. They couldn't have orchestrated it. They couldn't have done it themselves. And God found a way. It was just so good they they laughed. Karl Barth, the theologian, once remarked, laughter is the closest thing to the grace of God. Right? There's something about laughter, something about how it'll just come over you without your own bidding and your control, and it it takes over the body, right? We kind of shake a little. And you make an audible sound you would never choose to make in polite company where you're trying to put forth your best self. Something about the way you, you can't even put into words entirely why you're laughing or what makes funny things funny. And even though you can't describe it or fully, it is so true, the joy, undeniable. Something about laughter is as close to grace as you get. You can't grasp it, you can't control it, but oh, how it fills and frees the body. What are the parts of our story, like those praying Psalm 126 in our reading today, where where we look back and we recall a grace that honestly just has our head shaking and we remember A deep laughter. How precious those memories. In this particular psalm, the people of God are clinging to the memory of that kind of laughter. Because the truth is, for as beautiful as those first three verses are, and and the laughter and the dream-like quality, this psalm is classified as a psalm of lament. Because in this particular moment that the prayer is being offered, 
They're petitioning God. They're remembering yesterday's laughter, but they're petitioning in the rest of the psalm. I'm going to read the rest of it again from uh, the message version of the Bible so we can hear it um, maybe in a fresh way. And now, God, do it again. The laughter of yesterday. Do it again. Bring rains to our drought-stricken lives so that those who planted their crops in despair will shout yes at harvest so that those who went off with heavy hearts will come home laughing with an armload of blessing. Do it again. Bring back that laughter. Produce a harvest somehow from our heavy hearts and our drought-stricken lives. I was at a virtual conference this past week with a couple dozen, a few dozen congregational leaders and, and, and staff, church staff from around the nation, as well as a few congregants from FPC and church staff from FPC. It was a conference focused on the intersection of the church and youth and young adults in today's society. Uh, a lot of great material, a lot of good things to consider. But one of the more poignant moments of the conference was when the keynote speaker uh, took a, a few moments to draw back from his, his prepared remarks. He was taking a question from someone about how the church can do this or that or move forward with this or that. And, and he goes, we need to name something clearly for ourselves at the outset of all of this. We are exhausted. And even over Zoom, with everyone in their own little digital boxes somewhere everywhere scattered around the nation, even over Zoom, you could feel this deep stillness of agreement among all these different church folks, our drought-stricken lives. The irony about the deepest and fullest laughter we've ever known or we will ever know is that the breath for that laughter begins in the space of those deepest sighs. The breath for that kind of laughter begins in naming clearly the hurts, the longings, the, the barrenness, the profound disconnect that, is, that exists between God's vision for the world where none go hungry, where there are tears no more, where, where peace reigns, and how things often are. Where do we sigh most deeply today? In our lives, as individuals, as a people, where? In the strange calculus of grace, that, that is where the breath of deep laughter gets formed. In Christ, the space where breath ceases is, is the very space where eternal breath emerges. Mark Laberton is the president of Fuller Theological Seminary, and I, I listened to him address uh, the student body just a couple weeks ago as they were coming back for fall classes uh, for the first time. And think of all the things you might want to tell a group of seminary students as they're coming back into class and, and all that's going on in our nation and the world and the church and all the rest. Where might you start? He preached on God's promise 
of a child to Sarah back in Genesis. And that deep ache, that deep sigh that Sarah undoubtedly knew. And at one point he said this, we the church are engaged in a promise that is laughable. A child in old age, right? Love conquering the sword. The cross greater than death. We're engaged in a promise that is laughable. We are in the laugh industry, he said. You may have come to Fuller to think that you're going to study hard and think hard and work hard and all that's true. But at the core of it, if we don't understand that we have to laugh hard, then we fail to understand what we're really doing. His point is, if we're taking seriously the depth of pain and hurt in our lives and this world and in the fullness of God's promises in light of that and the often gaping hole between the two, then we cannot help but laugh. Right? If we're not laughing, we're probably not paying attention. In part, right, we laugh with Sarah's incredulity. How, Lord, how, Lord is this going to happen? But then we also laugh at the unexplained grace of Jesus Christ unfolding time and again in and through the most unlikely people and situations. That Psalm 2, it speaks of the evil powers of the world conspiring to do their worst in this world and among God's people. And do you know what God's response is to this conspiracy coming together of of evil and bad and God laughs. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. For the one enthroned has installed an even greater king whose power over sin and death and evil is even greater. But the sign of this king's presence and power made known in weakness. The king is often most forcefully moving among the broken, the overlooked, the marginalized. Laugh with incredulity. Laugh with the weeping. Laugh when you realize that the person coming to the church office looking for gas money to El Paso while showing you photos of his family is probably the clearest you'll see Jesus on the move that very day. How's this thing work? When's the last time you knew the grace of a deep laugh? Where amid some of those deep sighs we carry with us today do we sense perhaps there is reason for laughter starting to form by a grace we can't explain? I remember the end of one of my interviews with the 11-person pastor-nominating committee here at First Presbyterian Church. I was in the middle of the interview process and was doing the interview remotely in those days before we all knew exactly how Zoom works and how this whole thing goes together. And um, so I can't remember what software we're using, but um, Karen Rayburn, the chair of that committee, has wrapped up the meeting and, and all the rest and said, would you pray? And as far as I could tell from my side of the screen where I was, Karen appeared to be looking this direction at Cliff Snyder. Cliff appeared, in my screen, to be looking directly at her, unmoved, and doing nothing in response to this request for prayer. And in my head, I'm going, this guy, Cliff, he doesn't know he's supposed to pray. Cliff, you got to pray. What I didn't know 
from their perspective, Karen is looking directly at a screen with my face on it and had said, would you pray? And so all 11 of them are undoubtedly thinking second by awkward second, uh, a pastor who completely freezes when asked to pray. Take note. Eventually, Karen tries again, Bobby, uh, would you pray? And I go, oh. Oh, and I explain I'd been staring at this cliff guy, uh, wondering if he was going to pray for these last few seconds. And and their room (laughs) burst into laughter. (laughs) And honestly, this was such a frequent thing with that 11-person search committee. In fact, shortly after uh, taking the call to, to come here as pastor late 2019, I found folks would often ask me, so, so what brought you to First Presbyterian Church? How'd you know it was God calling you? And, and I'd say this and that and all these things, but you know what I would inevitably always say? I'd say, you know what caught my attention more than anything else in this process? That 11-person pastor nominating committee, this group that was really quite representative of of, of the whole congregation and all the different ministries and, and ways of thinking and being and loving and serving, every time I spoke with them or met with them, they laughed so well. Not, not like a nervous laughter, not a polite laughter, not a cynical laughter, a deep, joyful laughter, the kind that has surely been born of also sharing tears together. Their shared laughter was the thing that caught me the most, I would say. And then I would shrug and I'd say, does that, does that make any sense? And one of my mentors, after hearing me say that, leaned in and, and, and said, perfect sense. That means that's a congregation well acquainted with grace. May the Holy Spirit ever guard us from growing too serious, too cynical. Instead, may the Spirit continue to meet us in our size and by the gift of grace, fill us with fresh laughter, a fresh sense of God's promise, God's joy, God's inexplicable favor. And if, if this morning with some of the sighs that we're breathing amidst, we're wondering where or how that kind of fullness and freeness might just overwhelm us, I mean, who can say, right? Except the average four-year-old laughs 300 times a day. Like Jesus, perhaps we would be wise to find ourselves attentive to some of the youngest in our midst these coming days. I do wonder if they are not frequently the ones through whom the promise of Christ fills our bellies in a fresh way. Blessed are you who weep now. For you will laugh. Amen.